Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Psalms 2. You know what the church sounded like about 30 seconds ago? When my grandma used to give her four grandsons candy before the preacher started. I heard all the papers unwrapping. I felt like I was home again. So we are in the second week of our 150-week series through Psalms. I'm teasing. Everybody relax. We're actually in week two of a series we're calling The Pursuit of Wisdom. We will be focusing on the Psalms and the Proverbs for this series because what I want us to do in a day where we need to be grounded is to pursue what God says about wisdom. And how do we seek it? How does he reward us with it? And what does it do for our lives? And looking in the Psalms and the Proverbs, we'll spend a few weeks this summer on this particular path. We're going to be looking, as we began last week in Psalm 1, we're going to look at Psalm 2 uh, today because they connect themselves really well. And I want you to know a few facts about Psalm 2 so we can make sense of what we're going to be discussing. The first fact is that this is a messianic psalm. Now, uh, the scholars have taken them and broken them into laments and messianic psalms, psalms of praise. But this is a messianic psalm, meaning it's talking about a king who may have been currently living when it was written. It has a now and a then effect to it. So in other words, it was talking about probably a king who was reigning at that time, but it's also foreshadowing what Jesus would do as our great king. So it has a now and a then effect. Uh, This is one of the most quoted psalms in all of the psaltery. It's quoted in the New Testament. It's used about Jesus every single time it's quoted there. It's found in the book of Hebrews. It's found in the book of Acts. It's found in the revelation of John at the very end. So they understood this to be speaking about Jesus to a certain degree as well. And the Jewish rabbis taught that this was possibly one psalm, okay? So that it was actually Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were one, and later they split it in two. I don't know necessarily that I agree with that. I will, however, say that if if you don't see the connection between Psalm Psalm, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, you're really missing out and not paying attention because what is linked together is obviously that they were written around the same themes and they connect themselves together beautifully. In Psalm 1, I told you last week that the only hope against the pleasures of the world is to find the pleasures of the word. The only way that we're going to silence the voices, the voices of the wicked, the scoffers and the sinners, the only way we're really going to understand that is to listen to the voices of the word, to listen to the pleasures and the delight found in God's word, because that is where we find wisdom. And wisdom comes by understanding who God is and knowledge of him. And so putting that all together, the way of the wicked, the sinners and the scoffers are actually shown in Psalm 2. So in Psalm 1, there were two paths. You could take the wise path that follows and and draws neatly into the delight of God, or you could follow the pathway of the wicked, the scoffer, and the sinner and end up in destruction. What Psalm 2 does is it begins to show what happens if you take the path of the wicked, the scoffer, and the sinners, and it provides for us an understanding of how God responds to even that. Where is God in this? This particular psalm that we're going to look at this morning has four voices in it, if you'll allow me to set you up this way. It will speak to us about the voice of the the wicked. It will talk to us about the voice of God. It'll talk to us about the voice of Jesus, and then the voice of the Holy Spirit will all speak to us this morning and give us an opportunity to choose the path that we will venture down. So let's begin by listening to the rebellious reveal their hearts. It's found in the first three verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The question the psalm begins with is, why is the world raging against God? Why is the world fighting his reign? Why is the world so angry, so nasty, so divided, so broken? Why are they blaming God for this? What is their issue with God? You can find it in verse 3. Let their chains and their shackles be thrown off and broken. That Hebrew word for both of those terms speak of how they would bind animals and use animals and control them so they could get work out of them. That the world looks at God and says that God is restricting me. God is holding back my freedom. God is not allowing me to be who I'm supposed to be. Why does God get to reign over me? Why can't I reign over God? Why can't I have my own self-determinacy? Why can't I be in charge? And so we become angry and we fight against God. It's a rebellious nation. They, they refuse to see the good things God has done. They refuse to acknowledge all the blessings that he gives, all the wonderful things that he's provided for us in nature, in our own bodies, in our minds, how, how we are higher than the animals. We, instead of receiving all those things with gratitude, we receive them with resentment. You see, we want all the good things that God gives. We just don't want God. We just don't want to have to answer to him. We don't have to be accountable. We don't want to be judged. We don't want anything. We just want to be left alone. Give me all the good things you intended and let me live my life and leave me alone. And so we rage. The question is, why do the nations conspire? It's a strange translation because the word actually is rage. Why is the world so angry? Why do they get together and come to these conclusions that they should fight and they should scream? We live in a raging culture. People are raging over right things too, but they're also raging over the fact that their lives are out of control there's no protections and they don't know. We rage over injustice. We rage over deceit. We're raging right now over who should be respected and who should not as if you and I get to decide who has value. God has already deemed that so clearly. We should just honor it. But before I feel superior or allow anybody to sit there and say, yeah, why is the world such a mess? Because we are, aren't we? Think about it. If we didn't have the hope of the gospel, if we didn't know what delight there is in knowing a God who loves us, cares for us, and provides for us, if we didn't believe that there was more life than just this one, if we didn't believe, if you believe for a second, think with me here, that if everything you've earned your entire life and worked for, your home, your career, your job, everything, if everything was just stripped away from you and it was taken from you, would you rage? Of course you would. And this happens to Christians all the time. But why don't they lose their minds and lose their bearings? Because they understand we are just pilgrims passing through this world and the things of the world are going to be left behind. They don't define us. They don't change us. We are different. We're not better. We're different. And so in light of all of that, suppose that you didn't understand the truth of God's covenantal love, that God chooses to love you unconditionally, regardless of what you've done, that he will choose to love you and serve you and honor you and forgive you first. If you didn't have those things in place in your life right now, wouldn't you rage too? Wouldn't you be trying to get as much as you could get and hold on to it with everything you are and fight for it with great passion and be angry at the world that it threatens you every day? Of course you would. Why do the nations rage? Because they don't want to answer to God, yet they want the goodness of God. You see, Winston Churchill, one of the most prominent voices in the 20th century, the man during the beginning of World War II, when Germany was bombing the United Kingdom, especially London, he had a radio 
broadcast to the entire nation where he commanded them, he encouraged them, he admonished them, never give up, never give up, never, 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 never give up. It inspired a nation and they fought. And he said, we'll fight until the end of our lives. And they did. And they were victorious. Yet at the end of Churchill's life, his daughter said two or three days before he passed away, she was speaking to her father on his deathbed. And her father looked at her and he said these words, our problems are beyond us. Our problems are beyond us. What Churchill had come to discover is that people rage because the answer to the problems that we face cannot be found in our own character. We can't solve these problems. There has to be something bigger and greater. The kings of the earth rise up, it says. They get together in their pride, they reject God, and they offer the world, if you trust us, we will fix all your problems. We'll provide all your needs. We'll meet that core inside that if you serve me and you give to me, and God has already warned us what happens when we trust kings and we trust rulers and we trust people who think power is the solution to everything. There's fear, there's pain, there's war, there's death. See, delighting in the Lord is the antidote to the poison of our rebellion. The gospel, delighting in who God is and what he's done, it is the antidote to the poison that we have swallowed willingly in our rebellion. That's why the kings rise up and the rulers band together against God and his anointed one, and they cry out, break us free from this. So that's how the rebellious reveal their hearts. How does God reveal his answer? It's quite unique, and I think it's going to be a different kind of God than many of us are comfortable with, to be honest with you. Verses 4, 5, and 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. It seems a strange response. But would you agree with me that we live in a world that has a caricature of God? They don't have a real picture of God. They have, they have this image that they've taken from multiple sources. Like God is a bumbling old man in heaven who is so kind and so sweet and so loving that he's ultimately going to just forgive everybody of their sins because he can't help himself. He's just that way. We, we, have, we have a God in heaven, like, kind of like, without being disrespectful, but truthfully, kind of like the Queen of England. Has a symbolic position on a symbolic throne from days long ago that has no more relevance today, but it just is good to have a king or queen on the throne. And many of us live our lives as if that's God. He's on his throne doing his thing, but it really isn't relevant to the everyday life we live and the world in which we're engaged. And I want to tell you right now, that is a fictional caricature of God. It's not accurate. Psalm 2 gives us a vision of a powerful king who still reigns. He's not remote, he's not distant, and he's not ignorant. See, don't be mistaken about the mind of God. What does God do when he sees the rebellion of man who says, God, let me free of your control. Let me live my life. I can do it better than you. Do you know what God does? He laughs. This makes me uncomfortable. It's the only uh, passage in scripture I've found where it actually says God laughs. And it's not like an amused chuckle. It's a sneer. It reminds me in Genesis 11 when they're building the Tower of Babel and they were going to build this great edifice to the sky so the entire world would see. They were going to draw close to God and reign with him. And the language indicates that God had to squint to see it. Sitting in his chair, he goes, what's that? Oh, look at that. Isn't that cute? They're trying to build a building to reach me. I can barely see it. 
You see, when God looks down at man's attempts to break free from him, knowing that they don't understand that breaking free from God is actually the worst slavery, it says that God laughs. God simply looks down and you see, I want us to understand this. Does that make you uncomfortable that God would mock something we did? It, it offsets though that sweet, loving, old, bumbling God who sits in heaven going, they're just my favorite people. God looks down and he goes, huh, you think freedom will be found away from me? The only freedom you'll ever have is in me. And God mocks their efforts. See, understand this. God's grace is real, but it is not unintentional. Now, I need you to hold with me here for just a minute because this is one of those head turners. God's grace is real, but it is not unintentional. God does not have a computer code in him that always spits out grace. God chooses to be grace-filled. God chooses to be loving. God chooses to be kind. He doesn't have to. He chooses to. So let us never presume on the grace of God because it's available. Let's just say thank you, shall we? Instead of saying God owes this to me, I've earned it. God's always graceful. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to look at all of us at the end. He's going to go, oh, I love you too much to send you. I'm not going to judge you. Come on in. We'll just act like it didn't happen. If that is true, God is a liar. Because God said, my justice will be met. God has told us that he cannot look away from sin. That's intentional. We must humble ourselves and admit we've sinned, and then God has an action for us. But until we do that, God is not overlooking our sin as if it never happened. God sent Jesus to deal with what happened. And this is his response. What does God say to those that turn around? He said, I'm going to send you a king, and my king will not be a punishment. My king will not be a curse. I'm going to send a king and I'm going to put his feet on Mount Zion. This was the hill that David purchased, the hilltop, which once was a threshing floor. And David bought this hilltop and his son Solomon built a temple on it. And the great day of atonement would take place there where the blood of all these animals would wash away the sins of, of Israel. And on that mountaintop, God said, I'm going to put my king there and my king is going to come and he's going to rule and reign. You say you want to break free of my reign. I'm going to tell you my reign is what will break you free. So he sends Jesus to the place of the great judgment. But please understand this. I don't find joy with this, but the world is on a collision course with judgment. God will judge you and God will judge me. Now, some believers may spike up and say, I thought I would never be judged because of the blood of Jesus. No, no, I didn't say he's gonna judge you for punishment. God is gonna judge the work we do. So for those who think that the ultimate goal is just one day to go to heaven, you totally misunderstood the kingdom. And I want to invite you into a greater life, and that is invest in the kingdom and bring back gifts to God that are great, of great beauty. And Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that God will judge our work, and he will reward those things that last, and he will dismiss those things that never worked. But God is paying attention to how we live. And God will, listen to me, the judgment of God is this. God will give you what you ask for. If you ask for mercy and forgiveness under the blood of Jesus Christ, God will grant you that. And he will judge you as a forgiven person, not a worthy person, a forgiven person. And if you ask God to stand before him on your own merit, your own work, and your own value, he will give you that too. And according to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, that's not going to go well for you. To stand before God as a sinner saying, well, I've done more good than I've done bad, that is irrelevant to the argument. You have rebelled against who? You have raged against who? You have said, I don't want to be under the reign of the God who created me. You see, we are on a collision course with judgment. I don't enjoy this, but what I love about my Father, my God in heaven, 
is look at verse 6. There's one word in there, yet. Yet, in spite of the fact that we're on a collision course with judgment, in spite of the fact that we rage against God's control in our lives, we, reign, we rage against the reign of God, yet in spite of that, God says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to set my son, my king, on the holy hill. And it won't be a king that crushes us. It will be a king that we crushed. It won't be a king that judges us. It will be a king that was judged on our behalf and took our penalty. On that mountain where he stood as the son of God, they arrested him. They plucked his beard from his face. They beat him, spit upon him, nailed him to a cross. And yet he said, God said, I'm going to crown him and you're going to crush him. But by crushing him, you are actually going to free yourself from the real chains and the real shackles. Yet the reign of God will be shown and it will be beautiful. Let's look at how the sun is revealed in this. Read with me verses seven through nine. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with the rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So Jesus comes. Now, it's often read, remember, there's a now and a then effect. This may have been written about a current king projecting a future king. But I don't want you to think for a moment that Jesus had to do certain things and then God looked down and said, now today, because you've accomplished this, you are my son. It's not even in the original language. The English interpreters, for some reason, translated this and they added the words, today I have become, when actually all the original language says is, you are my son, I your father. This would sound like God and Jesus, wouldn't it? Not that Jesus had to prove anything, but on his baptism, what did the father say from the heavens? This is my son. I'm well pleased. What did he say in the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my son. I am well pleased. Listen to him. All we're seeing in the second Psalm is a projection that God would send his son, clearly his son, and God would say, that is my child. That is your king. You will crush him. And by crushing him, he will free you. And little did we know all of this that would take place. Every New Testament use of Psalm 2 speaks about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul equates this expression of God to the fact that in Colossians 1.18, he says, this makes him the firstborn from among the dead. This my son, I your father. So what are we gonna learn from Psalm 2 related to the gospel? Please learn this. We will never settle the question, the sin question, until we settle the son question. We will never understand our rage. We will never understand our resentment. We'll never understand our desire to be free of God's jurisdiction in our lives because we're trying to settle the sin question without settling it through the son question. What did Jesus come to do? He, come, he came to break us free from our shackles. He came to break us free from our chains. How? By wearing them himself. By putting on the chains. By putting on the shackles. And receiving the judgment that we've earned. And if we cry out to God, we don't receive a conquering king. The revelation shows us that one day Jesus will come in power and might. He is no pushover, church. Jesus is not to be mocked. He's not to be treated as a wimp. He is serious about what he does. But he did not come at first as a conquering king. He came as a lamb, a benevolent king. He will come again as a lion, and he will roar. It reminds me of that passage that C.S. Lewis puts together so well about Jesus 
you know, the question was, is Aslan safe? And the response is, no, child, he's not safe, but he's good. Meaning that he comes benevolently, kindly. He came by God's request to this earth. The, the rebels cry out, why is God restricting me? God says, I'm not restricting you, I'm freeing you. Jesus said, I will come and I will break the yoke of sin. I will break the iron that binds you. It will be different than you ever imagined. I will destroy the things that you don't even see. So we close with the Spirit warning us. The voice of the rebels, the voice of the Father, the voice of the Son. Listen to the Spirit this morning, church. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Once again, there's a picture of the king here that's awkward. It doesn't always make us comfortable. It, it basically blows away this, this preconceived notion that God and Jesus are these soft, just warm, lovable beings. Remember, grace of God is here, but it's not unintentional. It's his gift to us. We should not presume upon it. We should not disrespect it. We should receive it with gratitude and with love because the role of the Holy Spirit is to draw our minds toward Jesus and what he is depicting of himself, of the Father, of the kingdom, and of our purposes. So there's a warning. There's an exhortation because Jesus is not someone we roll over. Proverbs 9.10 says it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Wisdom that is separate of Jesus is not wise at all. And how do we understand wisdom and grow in it? By understanding who Jesus is. And by doing what Jesus says, delighting in the Lord, we find wisdom. His grace is not automatic. It was his choice. And it reveals who he is. It reveals how much he values each and every person. So it says, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, celebrate his rule with trembling. It is okay to love the Father and respect him enough to not disrespect him. Church, can I have an amen? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. It's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom to know the Holy One. So there's a difference between being comfortable, being close, being intimate, and being respectful. There's an invitation, and this will make you uncomfortable and it kind of makes me happy. Kiss the son. Kiss him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Verse 12. This is not an egotistical king who you have to lather compliment upon compliment on or he'll get all surly. It's not what they're saying. But Jesus was, was, was once kissed insincerely. And it was the kiss of betrayal. And we're not to do that, are we? We're to kiss him affectionately. We're to come before him because we choose to. You see, in Psalm 1, there were two paths, and we were on the path going toward destruction, and somebody shared the gospel with us, and because of the work of this king who landed on Zion's hill and did the work of the crucifixion on Zion's hill and came through the empty tomb, we have turned from that path, and we're going down a new path, which leads to life and hope and peace and joy in Jesus. And in that moment, when we see our king, we don't cower before him, we embrace him. We love him, we honor him, we take our refuge in him because he's our hope. So we've been warned, pay attention, 
Don't treat this lightly. Second of all, we've been encouraged. Kiss him. He'll receive it. He awaits it. Our worship is a kiss. Our service is a kiss. Our obedience is a kiss. Kiss the king. And then there's an admonition. And this is kind of a rough way to end the last verse. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Once again, this is not about God's ego. This is about all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ to continue to walk toward the path of destruction. Angers God, why? Because he loves you. His wrath is geared towards sin and he loves you enough that he cannot stand what sin is doing to you and he does not like that we are choosing it. So then what's interesting, it says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. How did the first psalm begin? Blessed, complete, fulfilled, satisfied. How does the second psalm end? Blessed, complete, fulfilled, satisfied. What is being said in Psalm 1 is being reiterated. What are the consequences in Psalm 2? And so the encouragement at the end is, blessed are those who choose to take the refuge in Jesus himself. Derek Kinder, in his commentary on the second psalm, has this great line. He said, there is no refuge from the king. There is only refuge in the king. The beginning of the psalm cries out, God, leave me alone. Let me free to live my life. And God says, there can be no life lived without me. I am the giver of life, the sustainer of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the hope of life. To break free of me is to enter into slavery. So Jesus came and he broke the chains of slavery that we might walk free. So how does this connect to the gospel and how does it give us a path of discipleship? How are we to live our lives? I wanna give you three things. As you know, I'm apt to do every now and then, I like to talk to you about your, your head, your hearts, and your hands. How should we think about this? How should we feel about this? And how should we act toward this? I wanna give you three things to do. They're very, very practical, but they're real. And I promise you they're the wisest path you'll make. Not because I'm suggesting them, they come right from the text. So how should you think about this? How should you engage your head with this? Receive his reign. Don't see God as a punishment. See him as the leader of the wise path of life. Receive the reign of God in your life each and every day, delighting in the Lord, delighting in the presence of the Lord, delighting in the word of the Lord, delighting in the service of the Lord. Receive his reign. How are your hearts supposed to connect with this? Kiss the king. Kiss the king this hour. Thank him. Appreciate him. Remember, grace was his choice, not his obligation. Receive that. Honor that. Speak of that. Praise him. On a day that people are thanked, on a day we gather to thank God and worship, kiss the king. Embrace him. It's like the father running out, embracing the prodigal son. Return that embrace for being received because we were all on that path. Somebody shared the gospel with us and we saw Jesus for the first time for who he was and we returned from that life of destruction to a life of hope and he awaits us. Embrace him. What do you do with your hands? What are the right practices? Share the love of God in such a way that those who you love and care about, those who you see every day that are on the path, listening to the wicked, listening to the sinners, listening to the scoffers of the things that are true. 
instead of sitting on this path, looking down on them, invite them to meet the Jesus you've met. Tell them about who God really is. Don't allow people to live in the lie of a caricature of a bumbling old God or an always angry God. Let them see who God is. How do you do that? You show them Jesus. You live out this life of loving and serving under the reign of God in such a way that you invite them to join you in this journey with Jesus for life. The wisest path begins by being fulfilled in God through Jesus Christ. Today, receive his reign. Kiss the king. Show the world who Jesus really is because this world needs it or it will only continue to rage. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.